we are back. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And a big warm welcome to everybody who has returned to listen to the Flat Out RC podcast. I'll tell you what, we've got a good guest on, uh, a gentleman that's achieved a lot in aero modelling. Uh, this guest, I've never heard of anybody attending so many scale world championships. I'm talking about none other than Noel Whitehead. So he's going to join us. So stay tuned to hear about his story in aero modelling. Before we get to Noel, let's have a look at what's been happening around the traps. There's a lot happening around the traps. Uh, we've still got a lot of events happening. You know, the weather, the weather down where I live is starting to turn. As I record this, it's a chilly 13 degrees or so. Uh, and it's not flyable at the moment. Well, actually, it probably was. But I didn't get out there. It's a bit chilly. A um, bit of a breeze. So, But uh, events are coming up. Uh, the next event that I'm going to is actually the Bairnsdale Mid-May Muster, which is coming up uh, on the uh, 21st of May at the Bairnsdale Club down here in Victoria, Australia. Uh, I talk about the Bairnsdale Club a lot because they run a lot of events. My mate Tony Wilson is a secretary down there and he keeps on sending me these posters and, you know, so... It's a, it's a really great place to go and fly. So I'll be down there Sunday, the May the 21st. But if you want to go for a fly, gates will be open on Friday the 19th. So happy to go there Saturday and Sunday. But the official event is on the Sunday. And it's basically bring any plane. It's not a scale event. It's not an aerobatic event. It's an everything event. Uh, there'll be a model of the meat award plus uh, some random prizes. No restrictions on models, numbers or types. Uh, you can camp at the field for $10. Good facilities, toilets, hot showers, all that, barbecue, fire pit. Uh, people love the fire pit down at Bairnsdale. Um, disabled amenities, catering on site, heavy model permits will be required. Uh, update to the flyer, Desert Aircraft Australia is proudly supporting the event and also, oh no, just Desert Aircraft Australia from an industry perspective. Well done to DA Australia. They're big fans of DA. Uh, we've got a few good companies that are really supporting events, and DA is one of them, Albury RC, Model Flight. They're sort of the three Ozdars, uh, did I mention Ozdars? The four that are really uh, working hard to help support events. A big thank you and shout out to all those organisations. And this time, Desert Aircraft Australia, well done. We love you, Desert Aircraft. The uh, Ian and Mark up there do a great job in Queensland. Uh, do you know that Desert Aircraft Australia actually make the ignition modules for Desert Aircraft engines? They're made here in Australia. Uh, I've, I've Get onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. You'll see a video that I did of uh, showing them being made. Um, so anyway, there you go. So that's coming up. I will be there. 21st of May. You know what? I'm going to go and fly. I'm taking my trailer. I'm going to be staying with a friend of mine, John Lord, who's been on the uh, podcast. I'm going to go and stay with him. I might not even shoot a video. I'll take some photos maybe, but my plan is just to go and fly, enjoy an event without camera gear, lugging it around. But anyway, I'll probably no doubt take something. But anyway, so that's coming up. Uh, the other event um, that I want to keep on plugging is the New South NSWPF, New South Wales Pattern Flyers, I think it is. 
the NSWPF 1000 Aerobatics Competition. Join us for the second NSWPF 1000. Take your shot at the grand prize. So this is a the pattern organisation up in New South Wales. They're having a big event. We'll be holding the second event at the Rebel Flying Club Field located off Cabbage Tree Road, Ash Island in Hexham, New South Wales, on the 24th to 25th of June. 24th to 25th of June, it's a pattern flying event, F3A pilots, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can go and try flying. You can bring any plane that can do loops and rolls. Uh, just turn up um, and uh, get involved and get uh, into the pattern flying scene, which is a good scene to be involved in. Uh, $1,000 cash prize. Gee. Um, so that is going to be held 24th to 25th of June. Uh, for further information, I don't know where to go because they haven't told me. Oh, please go to, they did, sorry. Please go to nswpattern.org.au for more information. That's nswpattern.org.au for more information. So yeah, there you go. That one's coming up. And of course, we've got the big, big event, the Australian Large Scale Models event, eight days of flying, Festival of Aero Modeling, 26th of June to the 3rd of July. It's eight days of flying. It's going to be another big event held at the Inglewood Airport. Uh, I got a call from one of the organisers the other day, and it's looking pretty good. Um, they got a lot of support from the local council. It's at a full-size airport, um, so there's multiple flight lines. Bring anything you want to fly. Um, I always say, if you go to an event like this, bring your best stuff. You know, Share your best stuff around. So if it's a warbird, if it's aerobatics, you name it, there'll be flight lines for everybody, jets. Um, four flight lines. Fly what you want. Four flight lines. Self-contained camping on site if you need to. There's motel and caravan parks nearby in the town of Inglewood. Food will be available on site. You can hire a marquee and golf carts to get around. Apparently, it's, you know, it's such a large space that having a golf cart can uh, get you around, but um, you'll be right. A bit of exercise. Never hurt anybody. Um, last year, they were, actually had a flatbed truck and they were moving planes around in between flight lines uh, on the back of the truck. So that, that seemed to work quite well. So it's a big, big field. It's a bit like Australia's Joe Nall event, which is happening potentially as we speak. Uh, so eight days of flying. Now get on board to register. Go to alsm.com.au, a new website they've got, alsm.com.au, 26th of June to the 3rd of July at the Inglewood Airport for the Festival of Aero Modelling. Okay, we've got all the events out of the way, so you know what's happening. Um, if anybody else has events, please send through a message to me. Facebook is really good. Get on the Flat Out RC Facebook page. If not, the Flat Out RC webpage and uh, fill out the form, contact form and um, tell me what's going on. So that'd be cool. Uh, now, I mentioned earlier, the weather's sort of starting to turn in my neck of the woods. And the question is, what are you going to be doing as the weather turns? Historically... If you live where I live, there's a period of time where you don't get to fly much due to bad weather. In my club, it has a tendency to flood as well. So if you get some bad luck with a whole bunch of rain, then uh, it's not that great. So will you be building something or not? Uh, I, I've got my, my next thing on my agenda that I've got to get done is I've got a couple of jets I need to get up and running. And there's not a lot of work involved in these jets at all. Um, there's one that I recently bought that I want to get up and running first, a little small jet. Um, I've got all the components. Just got to find the time to uh, work on it. Maybe next weekend, actually. Coming weekend. If the weather's flyable, though, I like, would like to get out for a fly. Then I've got the Bansell event, actually, the following week, which means, I don't know, I'll be flying there. And then um, ski season's coming. Oh, I ski in winter. 
Um, so every second weekend I'll be up at the snow. I'm actually going to be a ski instructor this year. If anybody who's going up to Mount Buller as a first-time skier, you might get me as an instructor. Yes, I do a lot of crazy things. Anyway, looking forward to that. But every other, every other weekend I'll be around. So hopefully should be able to finish these jets. Should be able to go for some flying. I'm really, really interested in going for the flying. I, I, I did get out again, uh, Anzac Day, which was a public holiday down here in Australia. I did get out for a good fly of uh, my plane. So I've actually done a fair bit of flying this year. Um, I know some people say, oh, do, does the guy from Flat Out RC actually fly? Yes, of course I'd actually fly. I don't just talk about it. Uh, I do go flying when I can. I've got a lot of interest, but uh, but if the weather's good and I'm available, I'm going flying. And I can't wait for the Bairnsdale event. I really, oh, like, I'm just really looking forward to hopefully, fingers crossed, the weather's going to be good. Because uh, it's a nice place to fly. I've got my big 100cc is ready to go. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting them up in the sky as well. I think I need to renew my heavy model certs on them though. But that's all right. My mate Dominic, the head of the peanut gallery, he can certify them. He's going to be there. So they're all fine. They're all cool. Don't you love it when you've got a choice of planes that are in a flyable, well-maintained condition? And actually, my hangar at the moment is really good. I pretty much can just grab anything that's in my trailer and go for a fly, uh, even down to a discus launch glider. My only problem is F5J. My F5J glider, setting that up is a nightmare. Oh, it's not. It's built. I've just got to try to get the wiring all jammed into the fuselage and then get the CG set. It's just a pain in the butt. There's no room in these gliders and it's just like a bird's nest. And everybody else has told me, yep, they're all like that. So it's not just me. It's everybody's got the same problem. So uh, it's annoying. But that's one that uh, normally winter, I don't see winter as a gliding thing. I like it when it's warmer, get the thermals going. So I've got till springtime to get that going. See, I'm a typical aero modeler. I've got plenty of planes, more than enough to fly, and I don't need any more. Just need to go and fly the ones I've got. Now, it's my favourite time of the podcast, uh, guest time. And this week's guest is a gentleman that I've had on the agenda for a while to get onto the podcast, uh, and his name is Noel Whitehead. He's a well-known name in this scale flying scene here in Australia, but uh, no doubt across the world because he's attended 13 uh, world scale competition championships, which I didn't know. Some as a competitor and some as uh, in sort of an official capacity, but uh, very well-known era model. I built some amazing models, uh, which we will talk about. Uh, Noel, um, he was on the phone line. The quality of the audio was not perfect, but you'll get used to it. I always find that even the audio is not that great, you get used to the sound of it. And um, But uh, Noel's commitment to aero modeling has been massive over the years and the dedication that he's had to scale competition has been phenomenal. Um, he really enjoys it. He's quite a accomplished flyer. He, he's done it all really, Noel. So uh, I love getting... Noel's story on the record um, because those those people that have been around for a long time have got a lot of history and I like preserving that history and, and we can learn a lot from Noel and, and his story is a good one. So let's just get into it. Here's my chat with the legend, the scale legend, Noel Whitehead. Well, this week on the Flat Out RC podcast, we have kind of aero modelling royalty here in Australia, a gentleman that has represented the country numerous times and is a known figure amongst our scale building and scale uh, competition scene, 
and that is Noel Whitehead. Noel, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Now, Noel, you've been aeromodelling for a long time, but where did your journey in aeromodelling begin? Um, as early as I can remember was when I was in primary school, in, in sort of the middle levels of primary school, um, I started building rubber-powered models to keel craft, sort of scale models. Um, and I I always built one a year at the end of the year in the school holidays. Um, I did share uh, a motor with my brother, and he's older than me. Um, and all we ever built for it was one team race model. Okay, control um, a control liner. Control line. Yeah. Neither of us knew how to fly, and quite frankly, I didn't enjoy it at all. Going there, came around in circles. <laughs> um, uh, when you know, I went to university, and things get dropped along the way there. Uh, and when I started work. I, I went back to my old era, model magazines, and uh, for a quite fancy radio control. And back in those days, it was really single channel valve systems uh, that you largely made yourself, and, and I didn't fancy that at all. So I put that on the back burner. Um, I remember it quite clearly. I was living in Canberra. I'm working in Canberra. And uh, I came down to Melbourne on business. And I was just walking around the city lunchtime one night. I wandered into Hearn's Hobbies. And there I saw what was then a modern uh, radio set, Futaba. What year? Give us a year, roughly. That would have been... 69, perhaps? 68, 69? That sounds about right. And uh, I, I really did fancy one of them. Um, but they're relatively expensive. But fortuitously, my parents were going overseas. And I asked them to see if I could pick me one up on their way home. Um, well, I gave them a number of makes to choose from. Some of the English brands have long since disappeared, or Futaba, and they picked me up a Futaba set in, in Hong Kong. Uh, so I then made a, a trainer to go with it. I was, um, uh, one of the Australian Aeroflot. Aeroflot, yeah. Um, uh, trainers, which I built and lovingly finished in tissue, as I knew how. Rocked up to the flying field with it. Everyone stood there in amazement. What is that stuff on it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so by this stage, um, heat shrink stuff had appeared, which, which passed me by because I had no connection with the hobby at that stage. And, uh, I thought the tissue was fantastic, but it's a bit brittle and 
But I, well, that didn't convince me. I convinced myself that I should go and get some some solar film or whatever that Brad was at the time and recover it, which I did. Where, where were you flying? What field? It's in Canberra. Oh, okay, in Canberra, yeah. The Canberra um, model aerotype field, which uh, there's been a few of them, but it's just sort of just across the highway from the one they fly at now. Um, so I joined up and slowly learned to fly there. Um, Did you crash it on the first flight? Crashed on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth one. Because it's always it's always a common trend when you when you've interviewed as many people as I have. Noel, it's always to see what was that first flight like, and generally it, it's a tale of woe. You kept on going though, so you must have been really into the building and stuff early on. Then, like you said, you yeah, started yeah. rubber band. So I kept going, and it's never broken too too bad to repair. Um, I. I sort of had a breakthrough moment um, lying at one day when I, uh, I took off and uh, instead of letting the thing turn as it wanted to, I held it straight um, and got to a respectable altitude and blew it around for some time. And I figured that was what you had to do, was hold it straight on takeoff. Oh, yeah. um, so that was all right. I gradually improved from then on. Um, I built a, a few sports models. Um, and it was not all that long after I'd started, a year or two, that I uh, actually moved to Port Moresby for a year. Oh, gee. And uh, discovered they had a club there. Which I promptly joined. So, did you take your uh, transmitter with you in a plane, or I I took transmitter with me, not not a plane. Uh, so I had to build a, a new one when I got there. Um, interesting. Some of your older listeners will remember a chap called Lord Dipple, uh, who was. Um, very accomplished style builder, not so much flyer, but builder. He built fantastic models. He he was there. He was in the Australian Army, which was attached to the PNG Defence Forces. So I met him up there. I, I learned a lot from him. What kind of models were you building up there? Um, it was just just sports models, low wing, um, low wing kind of things. Yeah, low wing. Um, oh, I've forgotten what it was called, a revolver or something other like that. Um, it was all right. Um, that was the first tree I ever crashed into was on the <laughs> the university over. There's been a number number since then. Yeah. Um, um, but I I was one of the uh, the, the senior pilot in that club, you know, I've been flying for about a year. Um, so I was able to give them the benefits of my vast experience. <laughs> Is this early 70s you're talking? Uh, early 70s, 74. Yeah. 
or oh, maybe 75, 74, 74 it was. Um, that, that, that was fun. Um, How did you go with the heat flying up there? Because I, I don't I don't enjoy flying when it's hot, but what was it like up there? Horrible. Yeah. Uh, so it was basically fly reasonably early in the morning and when it got too hot, you just give up and go home. Um, yeah, you do, you do get acclimatised to some extent, but but I, I didn't enjoy the heat at all. No, I wouldn't either. Um, and was, yeah. it, was it mainly expats flying up there? Oh, totally, yeah, the, no natives. Yeah. How did you get model supplies there? Well, believe it or not, there was a model shop. Right. Um, there was there was one place up there that supplied uh, large amounts of balsa to Australia. That's right. Yeah, they, they grow balsa in PNG. Yep. Uh, so there was a model shop you could go to, and they had a reasonable range of stuff. Um, so that that wasn't really a problem. Mm. Um, How long did you stay there? I was there exactly a year. Um, I I came back from that back to Canberra. Were you originally from Canberra or Melbourne? Well, I was originally from Melbourne, but I I went to Canberra after university. Yeah. Okay. To work. Um, so you know, back back in Canberra in seventy five. Yeah, 75. Mm. Um, I started building again. I had a had a variety of models. Um, nothing, nothing really spectacular, except at that time the the Canberra Club and the Walker Club sort of formed this joint association where they each hold a scale competition each year. Now the the Wagga one was the um, World War Two one, which it's still going to this day. Yeah, that's right. The World uh, one. The World Run on, on Anzac weekend. And the Canberra Club, to complement them, was a World War One competition. Um, it, it hasn't survived as well. But, but just to be in it, I thought, well, I should, I should build a World War One airplane. Hmm. Um, so I built an SE5, uh, an undesigned SE5. Um, I crashed it on its first flight. Oh, no. <laughs> what, what it was, uh, I didn't realise, I had wire rigging, um, and that jigging around created an enormous amount of noise. Yeah. And I, I just set off the air. Oh, uh, really? Uh uh-huh. yeah. Into a drone. I had my young son with me at the time. He would have been that's two, two and a half. And he just bawled his eyes out, and my airplane <laughs> zipped it up. <laughs> oh no! Uh, and that was a scratch. Was was that a scratch build or a kit build? Yeah, yeah scratch. Oh, okay. So that was my first scale model. Was a scratch built SE five. And did it look good when you finished it? Like, you know, as far as your standards go? You think, how would you rate it? Oh, I rated about a six, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it was reasonably accurate. Uh, I built it from 
some drawings in uh, Arab on land. Oh, yeah. They weren't, they weren't construction, they were just drawings. And I, and I designed it and I've been. Yeah. Um, so that was disappointing. And it, I did the tear up and blew it again and eventually sold it. But then uh, the uh, Roger one was coming up. So I thought I'd, thought I'd try and kill two birds with one stone. I think the Canberra one at this stage is they renamed as military multi wing. Um, so I built a fairy swordfish, which would uh, fit both categories. So the Canberra military multi wing, sorry, the Wagga military multi wing. Uh, I'm getting out the Canberra military multi wing and the Wagga World War II. Yeah, okay. So the this surface is quite good. How big? Yeah, you you think so big that they could have a bad sixty five inch wingspan or something. Yeah. Um it looked good. I had a dropping torpedo and everything like that. Oh gee. I was, I was quite pleased with them. It flew quite nicely. Um but it also ended Way up in the tree, said Wagga. <laughs> tree magnet. Had had a strong crosswind. Say, um, going across the, the road, and I thought, oh, no point fighting this, I'll just fly around this big tree. Um, that's another lesson learned. Hmm. You're going to try and fly around trees. So I went straight into the middle of that, but some considerable height. So some of the most of the hardware fell out, so I could pick that up. And I know about two hours later, this little kid, probably about ten or twelve or something, came running up to me, panting, "Mister, Mister, we got the aeroplane down." <laughs> oh, thanks, kid. You can keep it. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, after after that, what did I do for scale model? So you're still in Canberra at this point in time? Still in Canberra. Yeah. I, I was in Canberra till 85. I, I did build a, a large model, uh, a um, that was an English kit with um, with a beachy covered foam wing. Yeah, oh, yeah. Was it a foam, was, was it a foam core or a built up? It was. It was well, the wings were foam. Yeah. Uh, these guys were built up. And I took it to the National, so it wasn't the first National Foundation, but I took it to the National uh, at Richmond and uh, put it down uh, in the pits and just watch it destroy itself in the sun. Oh, it yeah. peeled off and curled and cracked and broke. Oh, no. Uh, that that airplane never made it home. I took a detour as a for the Canberra dump on the way. <laughs> that was disappointing. So it just, it just warped in front of your eyes. Oh, yeah. You could just watch it. <laughs> why Why would that be the case? Because I thought the, the Avicii wings were like popular kind of thing. Was it? Why do you think it, it did that? It was just the type of wood or? Uh, and the heat. Um, Christmas time in Australia. Mm. It gets pretty hot. Mm. And the camouflage airplane, so. 
I just like to set up and destroy itself. I built probably the first serious one I built was a Harvard. Might have been Brian Taylor's plans and the cut him in there. And I had that for quite a while and it it was good. I went to a couple of nets with that. But my first nationals was at Warwick in Queensland. And that was interesting. I met lots of lots of people there. Um you know, Ross Woodcock and there was a fellow called Bond Baker. He was a free flighter and he'd won he's won a world championship in in free flight in England a few years before. This is not free flight scale, just you know, whatever was free flight then. Yeah. And uh had big chats with him about how to do things. And that was very good. How did they manage you say at the nationals, I just thought of this. At the nationals, how are they managing frequencies? Because, you know, you would have had to have frequency keys and things like that to try to manage it. But uh You had your own frequency. Everyone knew what their frequency was. Uh and they just had one transmitter turned on at a time. So you had a, a key which had to go on the keyboard and no one else could turn that turn that transmitter on on your frequency. So that's how they moved it. Um, so it was really quite primitive compared to what we got today. That's right. We take it for granted, I think, nowadays how easy it is. Uh, yeah, unless you're flying through those times. Um, but I flew that a couple of two or three nets. Um, I flew the I was going to fly the SE5, rebuilt SE5 and won, but kept it too late for that. The next sort of serious one I built was a, a chipmunk. Yes. Uh Ryan chipmunk. Super chipmunk or just a normal chip? And a normal chipmunk. Oh, that was that was a really nice model. Mm. Um it flew well, it looked good. In fact, I sort of underestimated myself at this stage, but I I know I would have won the Nat Goldman, mm. um, except I didn't have a pilot in it. Oh, gee. And I'd always say, yeah, I'm not putting pilots in there. Ponzi things, you know. Mm. I, I play with airplanes, not dolls. And, and I, I missed first place by, I think, half a point. Yeah. But, but the pilot would have given me. So, so when you were building these models, you know, were you really making a lot of effort with the scale detail? At this stage, I was starting to, yeah. Yeah. Except, except for pilots. Yeah. Uh, well, it taught me a lesson, you know. If you go and fly in a competition, you should look at the rules and uh, and work to them. Yeah. That was, that was probably the last time I didn't do that. So it's really the scale competition was your thing then, at all these nationals? Well, it became my thing. Yeah, it wasn't to start with. Uh, I had no intention of entering scale competitions. I just wanted to fly my sports models around. But it, it was the fact that the Canberra Club sponsored the competition, and, and just to be in it, I started building scale models. Yeah, but that's how I started in scale. You didn't get tempted by any other um, competition scenes, you know, the the pattern flying or anything like that. No. Nah. No, I, 
I did do a little bit of pattern fly in recent, more recent years, and I decided I wasn't very good at it, so I gave that away. Um, no, it's just in the scale for competition. The chipmunk, uh, I'm sort of proud of its distraction because um, it was at Nationals at Bendigo, I think. Bendigo? Yeah. Um, we're flying on a really shitty day. Windy as hell. And the aeroplane was being blown towards the spectators. Now, it was a very underpowered aeroplane. I had a, a 60, an early 64 structure, uh, which gave it wonderful scale, speed and sound, but not much penetration. And, and I just couldn't turn into the wind to get away from the spectators. So um, I did the only honourable thing, and I just put it into the ground, which was uh, disappointing, but uh, otherwise it would have crashed in the spectators. It must have been windy. It was. It was very windy. Did you did you take a break from this flying scene at all during this era? Because it sounds like you were going pretty pretty hard with it all. No, I didn't really take a break. I was going moderately hard. I went, I went to every competition within a reasonable distance. Um, I went to... I went to lots of nationals. Um, I went. I went to the first. I think Darwin met. Yeah, this, this was when there was a, a, a bit more competition there, uh, and they qualified for for the world champs at your own nationals. Oh yeah. So, so if you wanted to fly in the world, you had to effectively go to your nationals and perform there. Yeah. So uh, that's that's really why we went to Darwin and, and to see the place too. How did you get there? Did you drive with a model or? Yeah, we put the car or the station wagon on on the train at uh, Spencer Street yeah. and caught the train to Adelaide. Then we caught the train to Darwin from Adelaide and drove the rest of the way. I mean, that's as far as the, yeah, the train went was to uh, Alice Springs. Yeah. Did I say Darwin? No. You said Darwin. The train went from Adelaide to Ellis Bridge and we drove from the back to Darwin. And uh, coming back, uh, then the trip to Adelaide by train was just excruciating. <laughs> you could get out and walk faster. <laughs> uh, so coming back, we got into Adelaide quite early in the morning and the train was due to go to Melbourne. Quite late in the afternoon, and we'd, we'd looked at Adelaide and not terribly impressed, so we, we just decided that we'd drive to Melbourne. So we just got the car off the train and drove to Melbourne. Unsurprisingly, without even asking for it, some weeks later we got a refund of the, that part of the train fare. That's all right. Now, so when you, move, when you moved back to Melbourne in around, you said, 85. Yep. Where were you flying when you got, came back to Melbourne? Um, I was living with my parents. Or we were living with my parents at Oak Park for a little while. And I did a bit of flying at Northern. In fact, I, I got down from Cameron just in time to fly at the state championships at the old Northern Field. Yeah. So I did that for a bit. And I met Chris McIver at uh, 
I drove that to Queensland. Oh, yeah. Oh, come and fly at Doncaster. Right. I joined Doncaster for, and flew there for a number of years. That became less and less enjoyable for a number of reasons. Small flying space at Doncaster Club. Oh, uh, yeah, very small, but um, I used to, I used to tell people it was a fantastic field to fly from because <laughs> wherever else you went, it was sure to be better. Most of us flying in those early days in Melbourne was at Doncaster. Um, when the politics of the club started to get a bit nasty, uh, lots of people left. Uh, I went to Greensboro. We were there for a few years. That was all right. It was getting quite crowded in too. Um, and it took me forever to drive there from my place. I live in North Melbourne. Um, and then I first started going there, it wasn't too bad, but the roads got more and more and more congested. Yeah, it's a bit of a drive out to the Greensboro Club. I well, like. well, it is. And on my side of Spa, in the end, it just takes me as long to drive to Greensboro as it does to drive to Turn Dark. Yeah. So you joined the Packenham Club. When did you join the Packenham Club? It would have been, it would have been the relatively early 2000s. And okay, so during this, this period of time coming back to Melbourne and going through the different clubs, you know, no doubt you just kept on building all along. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Do you have a, a particular category of models that you like to build? Um, if, if there is a category, it's, it's usually been uh, Australian Air Force fighters, but more trainers, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you know, like the CT four. Speaking of your CT four, I think yep. uh, your CT four. Everyone knows you for the CT four in recent times. That you have this massive CT4 model, which has been to numerous world championships, and it's just a phenomenal model. How did that? It was. It was. We don't want to talk too much about what what we witnessed a few weeks ago. Knowledge was devastating to everybody there, where uh, it has been damaged. I'm not saying gone, but I'm saying has been damaged. No, no, it's not. It's not gone. No, no. It's, I'm satisfied. It's not gone. It's. It's a solid model, but tell us about the, the, the history of that that plane. Um, why did I decide to build it? Because because it was an Australian Air Force trainer. That that was the attraction. Um, so I, I managed to get drawings for it. Now the RAF had had this file on most of their aircraft called the Master Dimensions file, and it has the XY coordinates of every piece in the aeroplane. It's a fantastic piece of information. So I I was able to get the Master Dimensions file for the CT4. Um, So I could draw up everything on the computer, but, but dead accurate. I know it's dead accurate. Yeah. Um, and that was a wonderful piece of stuff. They had they had a whole lot of aircraft I could have got this for. How did you come about those though? Like, were they? Did you have to ring somebody up, or you know, how did you find them? Yeah, I um, might have been via Lloyd Tipple again, but I had a I had a connection with the British Aircraft Company that was 
in charge of it or at that stage. BAE. <laughs> no, it wasn't BAE. It was Porker. Uh, Porker de Havilland. Oh, okay, yep, yep. They, they had guardianship of all the drawings. And I think it was because I knew Lord Dipper I got it in to them. And uh, I went down there and uh, he said, here's the pile of paper about two feet tall, you know, let you know which ones you want. So I, I just sat there half of the day saying, I'd like that bit, I'd like that bit, and they photocopied them for me. And, you know, in, in their shelves were all sorts of aircraft, all, every bloody Australian aircraft you could ever think of. Sure. And uh, they said, do you want anything else? I said, I'm not now, but I'll be back. Okay. By the time I got back, they, they shifted all their archives right. to the RAF Museum. Yeah. And, and the RAF Museum regards it strictly their own. Anyone who wants to look at it as an absolute interloper yeah. has not been beaten off at all costs. Oh, so I'm never really able to get anything else. Um, but what I had was this master dimension file. Uh, which I typed into my CAD program and drew, drew the whole thing up to the appropriate scale and built it from there. Now, how did you build it? Because I didn't know that, you know, there's it a fair bit of composite work in that. So, oh, the, the fuse arches, yeah. Yeah, so did you, uh, did you build a plug for it or how did it work? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I built the plug and then the mould. Had, had you worked with composites before? Uh, yeah. I'd done some stuff. Um, Why did you decide to mould it? Why? Yeah. Um, let me think. There must have been a reason. The reason possibly was because the um, the cockpit area was quite quite exposed. There was no, or well, not much, anyhow, lining in the cockpit, so everything was visible. So I, I couldn't have any you know, model structure in there. Oh, yeah, that, good that point. Self-supporting. Yeah. Um, so I, I figured that this was the best way to do it. Very good. I'm happy I did that. So, yeah, it took me quite a while to build that model. Tell us about the dimensions, just so people can, the listeners can understand how big this thing is. What was the wingspan? It's about 94 inches thereabouts. Yeah. I, I scaled it to meet the weight limits on scale, which at that stage, when I built it, I think it was a 10 or 12 kilo weight limit, and there was a um, a wing loading limit too. So I, I dimensioned it so that at the maximum weight, because I was pretty sure I built to the maximum weight, whatever it was, I, I didn't exceed the wing load, so I could work out the area. The wing area, whatever size I'm building, and divide by the weight, and there was your wing loading. So that, that's how I dimensioned it. It came, it was a 30% full size. Yeah. And the, the detail in that model has been, you know, is phenomenal. And even down to the cockpit, you know, area, did you do all that yourself? Yeah. So that's a lot of work. How much, yeah. how much time do you think you put into that model when you first built it? Oh, forever. Um, like, is it something that you've, you know, we've heard about, you know, David Law and his pits continually working on it year after year. Do you, do you, yeah, have you I, kept I, on refining it? Yeah, you never stop. Um, there's always 
don't think it can improve. But mm. but I I I puzzled over it for a couple of years trying to work out how to how to do the detail, in particular the rivet detail, mm. because it actually the full size actually has pop rivets holding together. And pop rivets have a little hole in the middle of them. Yeah. And, and I really puzzled over how to do that. And one thing I was determined not to do was use glue drops. So I had all these fancy ideas. I, I made up little jigs to to um, punch rivets out on the uh, Lytho plate and ABS and you know and punched a hole in them at the same time and um, most of them came out looking really good but uh, there was a problem with the plastic in that the winners from the paint would get under through the little holes I think and soften the adhesive and soften the the covering itself and it would end up a sticky mess mm. so. Yeah, I asked all sorts of people. I, I, I rang up Ross Woodcock. I don't know if you know of Ross Woodcock. He was the, the dean of scale models in Australia. Yeah. No, I didn't know him. Um, well, any of the more senior scale modelers will. Yeah. Um, and I asked him how he would reproduce pop rivets. And he said, oh, I didn't really know. But he said, no, it's interesting you ask that. He said, there's really only ever been one aeroplane that had true pop rivets holding it together. And I said, yes, and that might have been. He said, a CT4. <laughs> <laughs> I said, funny about that, right? <laughs> Fancy that. <laughs> so in the end, I resorted to the drops of white glue and, and then went over it with a uh, pointed uh, soldering iron and, and just Burnt a little hole in the middle of each each oh, river. That'll take hours. That would have been a big job. Yeah, it was a big job, but it, it worked out pretty well. Um, so I was, I was happy with the outcome. And it, it was the same with the you know the stiffening. I don't know what they call flutes on the on the flying surfaces. Yeah, I was trying the same thing. You know, uh, pressing uh, aluminium into moulds and. Uh, and nothing worked out good enough. In the end, I did again what I said I'd never do, um, gluing strips on. So I actually made the strips individually on a, a 3D printer and, um, and glued them on. Looked all right. In it. When it comes to motor, you, you, you had an EME120 on it now. Did it? No. What have you got on it now? Oh, sorry. I, yeah. Originally, what did you have, what, what did you have originally in it? Originally, I had a Quadra eighty, uh, but the E M the seventy in it. Here's the benefits of starting because my my skeleton doesn't allow me to kneel down. Yeah, it's got the electric so start on it, which is great. So I, I used to have to get uh, part of my one of my ground crew. There was David Law. Uh, Greg Lepp, uh, and occasionally someone else to start it from. I've been going embarrassing. So I, I put this self starting thing on. 
works well. well. I'm surprised that more companies don't produce a starter like that. No, I'm on. That's brilliant. I've gotten my, my best aeroplane, which was a chipmunk. Yep. Uh, uh, not a chipmunk. What colour was it? Camouflage. <laughs> so it's a warbird. It's right. Same again. Wind gel. Yep, yep. Um, and and that, was, that was where I started with the um, composite construction. Yeah. And the, the wind gel, I made a really detailed plug for, for it. Uh, yeah, I, all overlaid with lipo plates on the panelling. And, and the rivets were little pins. So I, I joined a little hole and tapped a pin in for each rivet. And I worked out that the best trail was uh, a, a wedding dress pin, a brass pin. Uh, so I, I reckon I bought every tin of wedding dress pins in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go around every shop and clean them out. Because there uh, are uh, many, many thousands of these things on the aeroplane. So you've obviously been a very patient person when it comes to building these models. Yeah. Because I, I just don't have that level of patience, I don't think, to be able to to, 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 to do that. But um, do you find that it's therapeutic for you when you sit down to build the model or, you know, what's uh, motivated? Therapy. Yeah, it's going to be very therapeutic, especially when I was working. What did you do uh, for work? I worked for insurance companies. Yeah, okay. So getting a bit of a break building models was a good thing? Yeah, absolutely nothing to do with my work. Yeah. yeah. But that was a good model. Uh, it was probably the one that I liked the best. Mm. Uh, it, looked, it looked really good. What happened with that model? Uh, I was flying at the, at the Wagga World War II event one year, and I had John Lamont calling for me. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever flown at Wagga. There's uh, quite a slope on the field. And I was doing a, a low, straight pass. And John hadn't been there before, and he started panicking because I was going to fly into the, into the ground. Uh. I mean, I knew, I knew exactly where I was. I'd been there so many times. In my right ear, he had that, no, pull up! I got such a shock that I gave pulled down. Oh, no. And I, I sort of straightened it up, but it just hit flat. And that was the end of that. Yeah, that'd been disappointing. Have you still got the uh, plug for that or not? I have. But, um, I have a photo of my screensaver for my computer. Look at it now. <laughs> See, that could be the next project. What's that? Build another windshield. Oh, well, I could. Um, uh, I, I, I've certainly thought of it. Okay, so that plane you took to World Champs. Now, when did you start going to the World Championships? Scar World Championships, that is. First one I went to was 92. Oh, 92. So how many have you been to all up? I think it's 13 now. 13? I think. A couple of, not all flying. There was two when I was judging and one I went as team manager. The rest have been flying. So probably 10 flying and three supernumerary. See, there wouldn't be many other. There wouldn't be be many other modelers that've been to that many Scar World Championships. No, not a lot. Not a lot. That's phenomenal. So, the experience of going to World Champs. Why did you keep on going back? 
One, my wife likes the holiday. Mm-hmm. That's a good um, two, and we just to meet friends again. And three, the scale competition scene here was sort of fading a bit and not very, not very challenging. I thought it was uh, more of a challenge and, and inspiration to go and fly over there. Yeah. But how did you go? Like, I always admire the people that go to the Scarboard Champs because you've often got to cart these big models across the world. How did you find that side of it? Because it's not, it's, not, it's not a cheap exercise, but, uh, yeah, what was your experience? When I was taking the wind gel and before it a pit, so I think I inspired David to build pit models, the pits was relatively easy because it would go in the box or built easily. Uh, I couldn't carry it with it. I never had a station wagon or anything, but you could, you know, often if you, if you flew into somewhere, near where the championship was, the, the organisers would arrange to pick up models from the airport. And that that's mostly what happened. We could, in those days, we could take them on the aeroplane as uh, accompanied baggage, slightly overweight perhaps, but again, the airlines would generally carry them for you. Yeah. Uh, free of charge. You know, try talking to them these days, so. No, they no. laugh at you. No. It wasn't uh, necessarily expensive taking a model back in the days. Today it's horrendous. You know, you've got a box with the with the aeroplane and all the bits and pieces and, and you have to make the boxes stronger than you used to. And, you know, you're probably looking at an 80 or something kilogram box. What, what was your favourite uh, world champs, do you think? Um, it's hard to, hard to answer. I think the uh, for me it's the the Switzerland event that you went to uh, a number of years back. That looked like yeah, a phenomenal we, flying area. We there were two in Switzerland and they were both sensationally good. Switzerland was third one I went to. I went to first one was USA at at the scale headquarters in Muncie, Indiana, and. Uh, I mean, the flying facilities there were unbelievable. And then, then after that, it was Switzerland and Interlaken, which is just down the other end of the lake from the one we flew out last night. Yeah. And I think it was, a, it was a brilliant event. Yeah, we were all met and we went out on the lake on a um, cocktail reception. Uh, when we when we got back to shore, there were bands playing. And, oh, gee. Uh, uh, yeah, it was just wonderful. Were the, were the competitive numbers more back then than what they are nowadays? Yeah, they would. It's perhaps started to pick up again, but yeah, typically there are about 45, 50 in each class. And you, you went to the World Champs last year, didn't you? Yes. How did that go for you? Um, I've, had, I've had better events. <laughs> um, certainly we... we we all got a shock when we opened up our boxes and saw how much damage had been done to the models. That's right. And my second flight, which I shall never forget or forgive, was first up in the morning staring directly at the sun, yeah. uh, which was just impossible. I couldn't see. In fact, I lost the model. I, I just couldn't see where it was. And 
and then I'm somewhere behind me. David had followed it and grabbed my transmitter and got back to safety. I'm surprised they flew in those kind of conditions with the sun in your face. Yes, aren't we all? So I had a look at the rules when I got back. I should have, I should have known it. Mm. Uh, but the rules quite clearly say that uh, there shall be no flying when the sun is in the in the manoeuvring area. Mm. So the organizer shall call it off. It just should not have been flown. Yeah. Um, so I should have known. The team manager should have known. And the organizer should have known. I shouldn't have flown. The plane came back in one piece, though. Yeah, yeah. Now let's fast forward because, as we, as we mentioned, there, there was a bit of a mishap. And it, it, it's not your fault. I witnessed the whole thing, Noel. Uh, he came in for a landing, bit of a touch and go, took off again, and then the, the engine decided to stop just on the climb yep. out after the takeoff. And yep. then you did your best. You, uh, the plane, the nose dropped, trying to pick up speed to see if you can flatten it out to get it back on the ground, but there just wasn't enough height and it went nose in. Yep. And yep. the amazing thing about that model is it was a, it's a pretty bulky model and yep. it everything was damaged pretty much from spinner back to start of the leading edge of the wings, you'd say? Bit further back, really back to the instrument panel. Instrument panel, yeah, and then, but and a bit of damage on the wingtips. But I was surprised at how much intact the plane actually was after coming in like that. It's a solid plane. I I think. I think. I think it had just crumples over the front. Yeah, well, it's like that because you know the rear of the plane is just pristine still. Yes, it is. So, but there's, but there was a fair bit of damage out the front there. You know, where would you start to rebuild that? Well, I've got two options. What I'd do, I'd lay up the front part of the fuselage and just uh, splice it into the, the undamaged bit, yeah. which which actually wouldn't be too much worse. I'd just go from there. The other option, uh, I actually have another fuselage, so I have. I have two of them. Is that is that ready to fly or you know, painted up and everything or just raw? Oh, it's all painted. It, 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 it was the one I took over since the first few times. Oh, okay. And I I made this later fuselage in an attempt to uh, get some weight out of it because it was, it was always perilously close to the, the weight limit. Yeah. So, so I've got a, a fully detailed Fuselage just sitting there, so that might work. Might be a simple solution. Yeah, very, very short term solution, anyhow. Yeah, it's a fair bit of work because the the canopy was gone as well, and so you'd have to do all that again. The canopy's, well, the canopy's not bad, but anyhow, I was, I was going to replace that because it was part of the southern damage. Yeah, uh, the windscreen's gone, but that's that's easily enough fixed. It has uh, the motor. Well, the motor seems all right. Yeah. All, all the all the the starter gear, the back of it is undamaged, the, and the electric motor it's all it's all intact, um, and it turns over okay. I think it's all right. Yeah, good. Now I was disappointed to see that go in because everybody loves seeing that model. I keep on taking countless photos of it because there's just so much detail in it which is great in photography when you can we can shoot a uh, shoot a photo a, a model like that and it always seemed to fly really well how did it fly from your perspective oh, it actually flew beautifully it was one of 
one of the very best flying scale models I've, I've had. Yeah, it seems to be a formula that that shape that CT four trainer is is sort of lends itself yeah. well to modelling, but. It always surprised me how you would do some sort of basic aerobatic manoeuvres with it, but never really high up, quite low low in the sky. And, you know, it'd come looping around and it's sluggishly sort of come around and then you'd be able to pull it up and it was, it was quite graceful to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, I have, I have several disabilities that go with my date of birth. Um, one is that I, uh, I can't bend my neck. Very well. I can't. I can't fly it closer than high up. So if I'm close in, I have to fly fairly low. <laughs> it looks good that way. I always say, like, I, I like seeing planes being flown. Sort of, it, it's a better display when the plane's flying flying a bit lower than if you're up at three hundred feet. No, that's yeah, I, think I, so. I find with some of these um, fun fly events and people have these nice models, and you just can't really appreciate them when they're at three hundred feet. Flying around in circuits, so right. um, yeah, and and the other thing with that CT four is just the presence in the air. It it looks it's a big lump of plane in the air, and it just you know floats around. It's amazing, but um yeah, hopefully we'd love to see everybody loves seeing you and turn up with that plane. So I hope to, to see it back up and running again. So um, well, it's certainly the intention, and I will. Um, and you know, I've started working in my mind what I'm going to yeah. do. So nowadays, is your, are your days full of aero modelling now in your retirement? Uh, I wish they could. They could be if I was disciplined enough. But um, yeah, want to watch something on TV or grandchildren to look after. That was my afternoon job was looking after two granddaughters. Looking back on your life in aero modelling, you know, why do you think you? you stuck in there for so long. Because I enjoy it. You know, it's frustrating that not yet. Uh, I I can't sort of contemplate these days building an aeroplane that's not scale and is not relatively well detailed. I think if you come and do it, you might as well do it well. And that's, I suppose that's the, the philosophy. Well, you know, if you buy a, a kit of a scale model, doesn't matter what it is, it's for anything else. It's all wrong. They, they never make the dimensions right. They always cheat on the tailplane area. Uh, and it's sort of a, an old myth, I think, that you have to have a bigger tailplane than the scale or it won't fly. It's just not true. So there's a lot of, a lot of disappointment. I mean, every, every scale kit I've ever bought, I've been, Thoroughly disappointed in, but because of the, you know, just the incorrect dimension. Yeah. Um, I believe that if you can make put out a kit, it's just as easy to make it with, with right dimensions as it is make it with wrong dimensions. Okay, so what does your future look like in aero modelling? Future looks like repairing some <laughs> models. I've got a I've got a CT four to repair. Um, what else am I? Doing? What other models have you got? Because I know you got more than one. You're an aero modeler. We don't just have one plane. Well, yeah, not many more than one at the moment. The only flying ones are 
platform You've had you've had turbines in the past, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was flying one today. Um, so all, all my turbines in the past is leading up to building a scale turbine model, and that's what the Mackie's about. Um, so that the front. Two thirds of the fuselage, I've got all all blocked up and, and all detailed with panels and rivets and got that one. Looks rather good. That'd be a good plane. Yeah. I'd like to see that flying. That'd be good. But it's, a, it's an aeroplane that has wings, you know, not, not like a lot of the modern jets. That's true. Actually, I'm a big fan of jets that have proper wings on them. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I actually for some of the um the Delta wings, I, I I struggle to keep orientation when I'm watching them, not flying them, but watching them. Yeah. But um yeah, but, yeah everyone, like yeah. a big uh, decent wing sticking out there. Actually, my my jets are both yeah got wings on them. <laughs> you at um, Wagner and David? I missed it. Yeah, I, I missed that. Well, I was there the next day, but I heard all about it, which was pretty disappointing. Uh, so um yeah, it was. Disappointed to see that go in because it was a, a, a nice model. It was a what F twenty two Raptor, I think. Which, by the way, I always had trouble yeah. keeping an orientation with that model. It was a grey, grey scheme, and I, and in the sky, I really would, you know, lose it. He 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 couldn't keep orientation. Yeah, either. it was you know that well when you think about it, the real models were built to be stealthy. And I'll tell you what, as 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 oh, that's, that's what I told you, it's a stealth aeroplane. Yeah. Yeah, it's stealthy. true. It was true. You know, so, but it's a pity to, to lose that model because that was a, a good one. But, but he didn't know which way it was up and it was actually worth it when he pulled up on them. Yeah, it's disappointing. But um, you know, I love seeing uh, – I'm the kind of person that enjoys seeing somebody else's model like that and like your CT4 that I don't, I don't necessarily need to want to own one myself, but I really, really love being at the field when someone's got one of those special models that you can just sit back and – enjoy enjoy the, the the view of it and uh but that was one of them and um your ct4 and david david law's pits as well is always a good one and you know there's a number of different models there that i just enjoy seeing them out there and again don't have don't have an urge to go and buy them but uh happy that somebody else has got them so i'm a big supporter of people that have these special planes so 
the truth. I mean, they, they look great, but they largely leave me cold because they're, it's, it's checkbook modelling now. You know, they just go out and buy their F-22s and what have you. Uh, and that, I mean, I look at I know, but it doesn't really impress me. To me, the building is at least half of the, of, of the model. Yeah, like you know, when you're a true builder, that's generally the case. But you know, there's still some some people around. Um, I had interviewed um, a guy by the name of Trent Smith, who's building some composite models, some warbirds. Um, he's just done a Focke-Wulf, and he's got a, yeah. a a really nice P51 Mustang actually that I've sort of fallen in love with. Um, and he he just you know enjoys getting in the shed and building some composite models and and doing what he does and scaling them up. And um, yeah. and he's a he's a he's a younger chap too. Um, and so I think, I think you've really got to have that motivation and that, that willingness to, to stick with these projects because they're not easy to do, you know, I don't know whether you take it for granted or not, but you would have spent hours in the shed working on models. I, I lived in my shed. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it's the whole game for me, the, the initial research and the, Finding drawings and drawing up plans from the drawings, uh, putting it together, printing it, buying it. It's, it's all one package, I think. I think that's that's the common thread amongst aero modelers is that, uh, you know, it's. I always say we we only spend a small amount of time actually flying the planes. When we think about it, you know, when you when you work yeah. out, you go and spend a day at the flying field, and if you add up all your flight times, you may have done twenty five minutes worth of flying for the entire day. The rest of it is talking yeah. to people about it. Nowadays, with the internet, sitting on the internet, it used to be reading magazines, that kind of thing. It's it's all encompassing. That every day, I'm aero modelling in some way, shape, or form, because every day I'm talking yeah. to someone, a friend from flying. And we're talking about something related to, you know, a model, um, a setup of something, uh, something that they want to buy, ribbing each other about what they want to buy, whatever it is, that we're constantly, um, you know, and I think that's because, well, my wife seems to think that I've got ADHD and can't sit still and that's why I'm always doing stuff. (laughs) Maybe that's the common factor. I always say that I've got two brothers and one of them did fly model planes. He's, a, he's an airline pilot. The other brother's a lawyer, and, and he wouldn't even go near a model plane. It's just too trivial. He, it's just too much, too many things involved when you think about it, and he just won't go near it. And But we aero models are like, yep, you know what? I'm going to build that aeroplane. I'm going to spend months building it, and then I'm going to take it out, and I'm probably going to crash it, but then I'm going to build it again. Like that's a special kind of person yeah. that's willing to go through all that. Uh, who, who are some of the who are some of the modelers that um you know that you've uh, looked up to you know Australian aero modelers that you've looked up to over the years? Well, I Ross Woodcock was to me he was just the ultimate modeler. Um, he did some of the most brilliant work I've ever seen. And initially he wasn't all that great at flying. He was good but not great. But he he, he improved over the time I knew him. Formidable. Competitor uh, before he died, Lloyd Dipple. At times I met him in uh, New Guinea. Uh, he came back and he was a uh, big friend of Ross's in Sydney. They all died. That's the trouble. Um, we had a number of 
people in Melbourne, um, Barry James, even Ian McPherson, who's still around. He's not all that active at the moment. Uh, Sydney, I don't, no, I can't think of them. That's all right. Now, okay, we're up to that final final question, the question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see which way you answer. I think I, I know which one you might pick. But that question is, what has been your favourite model of all time that you've owned? Well, it's down to three of them. It's, it's the pits that I had back in the late 80s. Because it, it was the first model I flew overseas. And I took it to about three worlds. And it, Two or three trans Tasmans that they had in those days. And it was a really successful model. I mean, I, I won nationals and state championships and all sorts of things with it. It was a small model, uh, only about a 56 inch wingspan, I think. It, it flew nicely. Uh, the next one was the wind gel. To a large extent, it was probably my favourite aeroplane because I really liked the looks of it. Uh, and then the CT4. So you'd be out of those, out of those three. Um, I think, I think the wind gel looked better. I mean, the paint on it had a really good sort of, not quite matte finish, but nearly matte. Um, yeah, lovely aeroplane. Although when I took my CT4 over, Overseas for the first time. Garv Jensen, who's sort of the boss of international scale, said that he's glad to see me with an aeroplane because it flew so much better than the wind gel. Well, I thought the wind gel flew pretty well, but whatever he saw of it, he he said it was a much, much more impressive in the air than the wind gel. And I don't know why, but but the two of them, I've enjoyed flying a lot. Well, that's excellent. I'll tell you what, you've really covered uh, a lot in the hobby and you've built some amazing models, which uh, not only you've enjoyed, but everybody else at the field's always enjoyed uh, seeing your models. So a big thank you, Noel, for all the effort that you've made over many, many years in contributing to aero modeling, which you probably don't realise, you know, when you're building these models, how much enjoyment you give everybody else as well, that we get to see those kind of models. So a big thank you to you and well done. Well, thank you. Yeah, I... I haven't built them for other people. I've built them strictly for myself. Sure, if other people can give enjoyment out of it, that's, that's good. Well, thanks for joining us, Noel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Thank you. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted and what an episode it has been. I really enjoyed my chat with Noel. I enjoy all my chats with all the guests, but uh, Noel was one that, uh, as I said, I've had on the agenda for a long time. Uh, he's a member of my local club. I see him around flying CT4, which unfortunately has has sustained some damage uh, due to a little incident, which I don't know. I think it was out of Noel's control. But uh, Noel, as he said, probably going to fix it. So he's got a lot of enthusiasm still. Uh, so it's good to see. Now, don't forget about all the events that are coming up. If you're going to be at Bensdale, the Bensdale event, great. If you've got events, if you're listening from overseas and you've got some events coming up and you want to tell me about them, 
more than happy to talk about them as well because we have an international audience here at the uh, Flat Out RC uh, podcast. So, and a big thank you to all those that are listening abroad. Um, I want to get some more guests from overseas. Uh, just managing time zones. It's a major challenge here when you live down this neck of the woods. It's the only problem we have. So anyway, big thank you once again. Thanks to Noel. And don't forget, get onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. Take a look at some of the videos we've got up there. Instagram and Facebook as well. Get to a local event. Start building some model airplanes. Get out there. Keep on having some fun. Talk to you soon. Take my